the powers that be will try to exploit loopholes to protect the status quo and to not implement needed reforms. They'll just continue to maintain that everything's fine. It really comes at the cost of science and scientists and all of us. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. secret that many of those with deep ties or interest in the fossil fuel industry have worked long and hard to undermine the science and research around the causes and the consequences of man-made climate change, specifically how it originates from toxic pollution in our atmosphere, mostly caused by the burning of oil, gas, and coal. These very well-funded efforts have gone as far as the personal intimidation of climate scientists and others who are seeking to understand and stop the climate crisis. This week, we're joined by Lauren Kurtz, the executive director of the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund, where she works tirelessly to preserve the integrity of the scientific research and defend the livelihoods of scientists facing legal battles. The Climate Science Legal Defense Fund protects the scientific endeavor by providing support and resources to scientists who are threatened, harassed, or attacked due to their findings or their fields of study. In this episode, we talked with Lauren about the importance of the legal fight for science in the face of mounting concerted attacks to suppress, to invalidate, and to intimidate scientific researchers and the parallels of science denial we're seeing between climate science and this year with the COVID-19 pandemic. Lauren, thank you so, so much for making the time to speak with us today. I'm so excited to virtually meet you. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so first off, I just kind of wanted to ask, how how are you? How have you been through <laughs> quarantine? Um, how, how have these past couple of months been? Um, I've been fine. <laughs> been an interesting yeah. time for sure um, definitely how about you um likewise same we we're based in boston and we're still all kind of working from home um yeah. is it the same for you or are you back yeah. in the office slowly um we are pretty much a remote team at this point uh mm -hmm. i mean we're getting the mail checked and such but it's uh not the way it used to be for sure right right and where are you based we're based in new york city so uh March and April wow. are especially interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, a real uh, crash course in what happens when you ignore scientific predictions. Absolutely. And and I can imagine, and I want to get into a little later, how this has also related back to your work a lot. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, 
But do you want to maybe start off uh, by telling us, so you're the executive director of the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund. Uh, for people who are not familiar with the organization and with you, maybe do you want to give us kind of uh, an overview of what you you did, what brought you to work here and what the organization currently does? Yeah. So I will start off by saying that the organization was actually founded back in 2011. Um you know, a little bit before the current political era, because, you know, even back then, scientists were dealing with a lot of politicization around science. I mean, this is a very long standing issue, unfortunately. Um, and in 2011, we were um, founded as a PayPal page, actually, to crowdfund for the um, defense of Michael Mann, who's a pretty prominent climate scientist, um, had been really been put under fire by a number of um, for lack of a better term, I'll just call them, you know, climate change denying groups. And mm -hmm. they in particular were trying to use state laws to target him. Um, and the early days of the organization, we worked more on state level issues. These days we work more on federal issues, but, um, you know, same type of work, you know, to help scientists who find themselves um, targeted because of their research, scientists who are facing censorship or retaliation, uh, frivolous lawsuits, any manner of things in which a lawyer would help defend them. So that's where we come in. Um, I joined the organization in 2014. Previously, I had been working at a law firm um, and just, you know, really wanted to get more involved in environmental work and doing something uh, more meaningful. I started off life as a biology student. Um, you know, back in college, that's what I majored in and at one point thought I might want to pursue that, but realized that, um, you know, I really admire science and scientists, but working in a lab just didn't totally jive with my particular skill sets. So I went to law school, but I really wanted to kind of apply that love of science and protecting science. And here I am now. Um, and it's amazing work that, that you're doing. And specifically, I think a lot of us know maybe high level what is happening in terms of denying science, but what is or might be a little more distance is these actual very personal and very targeted attacks yep. uh, that scientists are, are dealing with increasingly so. Um, so I wanted to maybe ask you about that. I see that a big pillar of, of the organization is also communicating these things yeah. that are happening beyond just defending scientists. So yes. what, what was surprising to you, or I guess, when did you realize that this was such a pattern of, of just personal and vicious um, attacks and why is it so important that more people know about it? I mean, I definitely was aware of, you know, ClimateGate, for example, in 2009 and mm -hmm. 2010, I definitely aware that that was um, a really targeted attack, as you say, on scientists. And I think what really struck me is the breadth of that happening. I mean, we hear about some of the prominent issues, but unfortunately it's a lot more pervasive than that. And I don't think I fully realized the extent of it until I started working at CSLDF. I do think that people today are somewhat more up to speed on this. Unfortunately, I think because it has grown so much, it's a lot um, harder to ignore. Mm -hmm. So in the last few years with the Trump administration and some of the other things that have happened, I think it's brought this issue more into the forefront, which is terrible that it's happening to such an extent, but I'm also grateful that people are starting to realize it and recognize it more because that's obviously the first step in us combating it and fixing it. Right. Um, and what are some of the things CSLDF um, is doing to combat these attacks on, on, on a larger kind of systemic way? 
Sure. So our first line of defense is obviously representing individual researchers and really helping the folks who are affected by this. But when you talk about systemic reform, that's obviously a much bigger issue. So we do, as you noted, um, we do public education to help people understand these issues. We promote reform measures. I've been heartened that in the last year or so, there have been some broad scale legislative legislative initiatives. Um, the House Scientific Integrity Act, for example, which um, is still pending, but I think it's you know gaining a groundswell. And as noted before, the uh, pandemic has really, um, I think, had people realize in a very stark way that this is an issue that is not going away. And if we continue to ignore science and silence scientists, we are just going to have an increasing number of issues resulting from that. Right. And maybe let's talk about that for a minute, because I think a a lot of the reaction from the environmental community was a little bit of this kind of deja vu um, from scientists and people working on this field, knowing the playbook that was being carried out in order to discredit infectious disease experts and experts in public health. Uh, But I think it was also kind of a shock to a lot of people just because of how direct of a threat this mm-hmm. pandemic is. And, and we're literally seeing almost with our own eyes, I mean, especially you in New York, um, the literal bodies kind of piling up and the death caused by by this. And even in the face of that, this denial of science and, and a denial of, of the facts. So I wonder how this experience has kind of shaped or reshaped or influenced how you think about this this issue on your work? Yeah. Um, well, you you hit the nail on the head, I think, in encapsulating the ways in which this is just the recurring pattern, unfortunately. But I think mm-hmm. it has helped me understand ways to communicate it better to folks. I mean, obviously, being able to point to the pandemic is a very visceral experience that we're all currently undergoing. And, you know, it's... Um, it's really unfortunate that we are here, but I think it can also be a learning experience for us um, to hopefully stave off having to go through another broad scale disruption as a result of climate change, which is where we are headed if we don't listen to the scientists. But if we do listen to the scientists, we can not end up here again. Um, So it is obviously important for people to really understand that at a deep level. And I think the pandemic has made some progress on that front. which is, I suppose, a silver lining from the whole thing. Um, one of our board members actually, I think, put it well. You know, the COVID-19 is the uh, pop quiz, but climate change is the final exam. Right. I mean, it's basically the same issue, um, just in a different context. And this one has hit us faster and harder than climate change. But that doesn't mean that, um, you know, climate change isn't potentially a much larger disruption facing us in the coming decades. And in, in a way, so so you're saying this, and I agree, it's definitely been an eye-opener for a lot of people, especially as it relates to some of these disasters and their disproportionate effects mm-hmm. um, on, on who is suffering and why they are. But at the same time, do you also see kind of the powers pushing back also at a, at a great scale in doubling down on, on denial and doubling down on attacks on people? trying to basically do their jobs that are supposed to not be political, right? Like science and facts. Um, 
have you seen some of that or or how how has it manifested? I mean, they're doing the same thing as they've done before. It's been pretty effective in climate change arena. Um, it's not right. necessarily the same actors. Uh, the fossil fuel industry, for example, I think has been very effective in silencing and discrediting climate scientists over the years. Um, they're not the industry who's really promulgating the COVID denial. In some ways, the COVID um, anti-science efforts, I think, are coming largely from inside the government. Um, because it's very inconvenient to the current administration's agendas. Um, and they have botched the response so badly that in some ways it's an ongoing cover-up. So different actors, same script. Um, I'm not sure I've seen a huge difference in the way that it's played out um, on a tactical level, but obviously the implications are very present for all of us. Lauren, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about any of the current work that you have going on or, or what you're focusing on currently? Yeah. So we have a couple things in the hopper right now. One is we're putting out some materials about um, how scientists can be involved in campaigns and the election process and be more politically active, you know, while recognizing that scientists who, um, for example, get federal funding have some constraints surrounding that that are worth being aware of, but generally not too uh, prohibitive. Just general kind of know your rights piece um, for scientists who want to be politically active in the 2020 campaign. And the other set of things that we have going on is um, to help scientists better understand the scientific integrity policies that are in place at federal agencies and other institutions. Um, we think it's really important to have a legal framework that allows scientists to do things like file complaints when there are scientific integrity violations. And most agencies and institutions do have some policies in place that we have tried to distill for folks. Um, we're also putting out some um, guidelines for how to improve these policies, which I hope at a federal level we can start doing in uh, 2021. We'll see. Um, but even, you know, even on a longer timescale, I think it's just an important conversation to be having on how ways that we can improve the ways in which um, scientists can fight back against uh, attempts to censor or manipulate or otherwise silence the science. Absolutely. And I also actually saw the silencing science tracker um, yes. that you're doing, I think, in conjunction with Columbia Law School. And I might say it's actually terrifying and fascinating going through it. Um, just the amount, I mean, I think there's over 400 um, entries and listings mm -hmm. of how this has happened and just under the current administration. So we'll be sure to link out in, in the description here to all of these resources and, and your website as well, if anyone wants to um, get involved. Great. Yeah. And I'm wondering maybe if you are free to share maybe a story or a particular kind of case that you've worked on that really illustrates how these powers are really insidious and can actually have a detrimental effect both on individual people and, and on their important work as well. Yeah. Um, there's a number of examples I could give you, but one that has really stuck with me the last couple of years is, um, Maria Caffrey, who you may have heard of. She's a climate scientist who was, um, at the National Park Service, NPS, mm -hmm. and she wanted to produce a report that, um, you know, identified different, uh, climate change scenarios based on emissions possibilities. 
And the government at first wanted her to omit any references to the human causes of climate change, which when you're talking about different emission scenarios is sort of a fundamental premise. And so she rightfully, I think, pushed back hard against that um, attempted censorship. And she was ultimately successful. But, um, you know, her position was terminated and the scientific integrity complaint that she brought, um, it was found to not be a violation of NPS's scientific integrity regulations because, you know, she had been successful in ultimately publishing the report. They said that attempted censorship basically was not actual censorship, which is a real travesty in my opinion and just goes to show the ways in which, um, you know, the the powers that be will try to exploit loopholes to protect the status quo and to not um, implement needed reforms. They'll just, you know, continue to maintain that everything's fine. Mm -hmm. And it really comes at the cost of science and scientists and all of us. So I'm hopeful that um, the next administration can really rectify some of the issues that have been languishing for many administrations, frankly. Um, I mean, these scientific integrity policies that I've referenced are a big issue for my organization because, in principle, they should be really helpful and protective, and they, and they have been at points. Um, but I think the current political situation has been a real stress test on them, and it's showed a number of flaws and shortcomings that we need to rectify in order to really be able to protect scientific integrity in the way it's, it needs to be protected. Absolutely. Um, do you see, do you think scientists, specifically climate scientists and, and across a number of other issues that have become political, do you think they understand these battles or these struggles as kind of part of what they're signing up for? Um, I see and in and, and a lot of Twitter threads as scientists kind of talking to each other and communicating about the issues they might face in publishing or pursuing uh, this kind of research. And it seems kind of mind-blowing that this is has to be part of the job description at this point. But is it? And, and is that kind of what you're, quote-unquote, signing up for? Um, that is a great question. I mean, it is sort of mind-blowing that that's even in consideration. I would not say it is the first thing that a scientist should be focused on. And our goal as an organization, in many ways, is to take that mental load off scientists so that they don't need to worry about it. Mm -hmm. um, because that is one of the goals of these anti-science forces is to really distract and um, take scientists away from their research and to, you know, really occupy a space that scientists and society would be much better uh, served by scientists being able to do their work. So I don't want to overemphasize the need for scientists to be cognizant of this threat, but at the same time, I can't deny that this is a real thing that scientists need to be aware of. Um, and, you know, to the extent that any scientist has issues regarding any of this or, or fears or concerns, I encourage them to reach out to us or another legal group, um, even if it's just kind of a know your rights, how to protect yourself arena. Um, we're happy to help with that. So, I mean, I do think younger scientists are aware that this is a possibility. I think some of them are actually very excited to take on this fight. I think, I mean, it's galvanizing in a way. Um, right to really fight for, for science. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty righteous fight in my opinion. Um, and I think a lot of the younger career scientists are in particular really um, enthusiastic about taking on that mantle. But, you know, I also think that scientists who are less interested in that particular aspects of things should not be dissuaded from doing science. There's many great ways to be a scientist 
And you don't necessarily need to be one of the more confrontational ones in order to do important, good work that, you know, helps the world and impacts our understanding of the world. Yeah. And I think um, it's also indicative of how important the work is, right? When, mm -hmm. when you talk about the righteousness and it's the very need to actually publish and, and go ahead and do the research that these powerful interests are, for various reasons, trying to get you not to do. Yeah. Um, in the last Great season point. of the podcast, we actually spoke to a couple scientists, scientists, science communicators, and even journalists on this shift from kind of staying, quote unquote, on your lane, doing the work and just kind of publishing, whether you're a journalist or a scientist, publishing the work and, and letting that go towards a need to become also advocates for, yeah. for the work and the research and, and kind of the truth. And I think it's it's a very curious balance that people who are seen as unbiased and, and on the side of facts um, have to manage because at, on the one hand, your your work can be perfect, like following the scientific method or journalistic integrities. But if that in itself is being attacked, then then how do you not advocate for that? But I think in, in some ways, be, the science, science advocates or scientists who are also advocates are then also discredited for that. Um, and there's a lot of instances in which um, people opposed to such work use that as a way to say, well, how can you be unbiased if you're also advocating for policy, for example? Um, how does that interact to your work or, or with the people that you work with that need to kind of strike that balance and, and still stand up for your work? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's obviously a, a tension, um, I think, even just within the scientific community about what is appropriate for mm -hmm. a scientist to do as a scientist. And my personal opinion is, you know, people who are researching these critical issues absolutely should feel empowered, if they so choose, to speak out about the need to tackle them. Um, and I think there's a variety of ways in which scientists can do that, either as a scientist or as a citizen. Um, you know, I would not say that scientists have a duty to stay quiet about the research. I think if a scientist feels that is the best way that they can contribute, but just to focus solely on the research, I certainly wouldn't begrudge them. But I feel really um, inspired by the scientists who take um, take on the responsibility to educate lawmakers and the public about the importance of addressing climate change and other scientific issues facing us. I think that's a really important part of public education. Um, and I think one of the things that we've seen recently, especially in the climate change arena, is scientists who do get involved in advocacy around this are sometimes the ones who are the most targeted. And I right. think that speaks to your earlier point that they're doing some of the most impactful stuff surrounding that. Um, they're the ones who, in the eyes of um, those who would prefer we not take action on climate change, are the most dangerous because they're the most likely to lead to actual action on climate change. Um, so I in no way would want to encourage those scientists to stay quiet. I do want to encourage them to do it safely and within the legal bounds of their employment and, you know, there's whatever visa requirements, for example, and scientists with actual questions about, you know, how to navigate their personal situations. That's one of the areas in which we also encourage scientists to reach out to us. But yeah, my personal opinion is that scientists are a very important part of this conversation and should not be told to focus solely on the science just for the sake of um, not meddling in other arenas, because I think this is really a cross-disciplinary issue, and scientists have a lot to offer in these conversations. 
Yeah, they they really do. And that's why I think resources like the ones you are providing are so incredibly critical um, is for scientists to understand that they are not necessarily alone or have to face this seemingly insurmountable institutions and, and kind of pressures um, on their own. Um, I'm also curious on on how you've seen this shift uh, since you started. We talked a little bit about this was before the current administration, but even either including that or in larger scales, how have you seen attacks on science and scientists change or shift uh, throughout your time with CSLDF? Yeah, I think there's really two shifts that are happening. One is post-November 2016, I think a huge swath of the scientific community got galvanized in a way that they had not been before, had not been to the degree they were before. Um, you know, it really became a crisis point that the scientific community felt needed um, needed serious attention, and they have given it to it. I mean, the number of scientists who, for example, are running for office is really impressive. Scientists who are getting more politically engaged and active, and just you know, in general, speaking out about the importance of taking action on climate change, I think is really heartening. The other thing that has happened is, I think, um, you know, as a the younger generations of scientists have graduated or even just entered programs, they have brought a new dimension to all this of just, you know, youth activism, not only with climate change, but also Black Lives Matter and um, intersectionality in science. I think that's also a really important conversation that's being had. And that's being very much driven by younger folks coming into the scene and realizing the ways in which um, the traditional models of science need to be adjusted. So that is not um, exactly the focus of my group, but I've been watching and appreciating all of that too. Definitely. And I think we we see that across so many industries, this kind of being a final wake-up call to understand that, that the ways in which we've been doing things are are very broken and, and have to be revisited and reimagined. Mm-hmm. In terms of, of kind of... Black for, a be- for lack of a better word, the perpetrators of this denial or these attacks, who would you say those are? For people who are kind of unfamiliar or maybe um, uninformed um, as to the scale on which this is happening, who are the people or the organizations behind this massive suppression uh, of science and scientific findings? Yeah. So I would say that by and large, they can be categorized as folks who find the scientific research inconvenient. And I think that is true for both, you know, things that are happening with the pandemic and also climate change and other areas, you know, environmental toxicology, for example. So corporate interests have historically been a part of this. Um, The government, current pro-industry focused uh, federal administration, I think, falls under this. And I want to say sometimes I think it may not even be totally... Um, people may not even be totally cognizant that they're doing it, but I do think there's this very human emotion to want to shoot the messenger. And when someone comes to you with research that is contrary to your business model or your personal ethos or your ideology, it's very easy for you to want to discredit them. Um, and what we've seen is a really broad scale of effort at that over the past couple of decades. Some of it very targeted and insidious, and some of it has been more nebulous you know, for example, in the federal government, I think there's just an overall atmosphere that um, climate science needs to be, you know, diminished or um, 
lessened in some way, even by people who in a different administration may have been very interested in promoting it, you know, they're feeling a crunch for job security or, um, you know, not wanting to have to deal with any sort of political fights. And so they'd rather just not um, promote the sort of research that should be promoted. They're not censoring exactly, but they're certainly not um, doing what they would in a more free society in order to, you know, promote important work. Right. Um, And that is, you just hit on the quote unquote free society. And I think a lot of the ways in which we think about um, America as being a place where there's, there is freedom and there is um, high regard for science and the scientific pursuit. And that clashes a lot with what we see happening. Right. So I think even well-meaning people who see this and say, there's no way it can be that institutionalized um, or that insidious that this is happening. Um, I'm curious, what what is your advice for people who are highly concerned about this, don't necessarily work in the space? What are some ways in which regular people, concerned citizens can be engaged in, in the fight to preserve science and, and the scientific integrity? Great question. Um, one, I think just speaking out against it and making it a part of everyday conversation is really important. I think it has Mm -hmm. been seen for a number of years as a fringe issue. Um, And I think that's really unfortunate because it may be in some ways sort of niche when we think about all of the issues facing the world, but at the end of the day, it is actually hugely impactful. Right. And I think it's important for us to really give it the attention that it deserves. And we need to be talking more about this and making Um, conversations around it more mainstream, something that kind of paradoxically has happened more with the Trump administration. It's really brought these sorts of issues into the forefront and people have been talking about them and thinking about them more and realizing what, um, what a critical problem that is. Secondly, um, I would really encourage everyone to vote in the November 2020 elections, particularly with the pandemic. Um, You know, I think this election cycle is going to be extremely weird And I think absentee voting is something that we should be working on to encourage people to sort that out early, figure out their voting protocols, um, whether that's just, you know, from volunteering for the campaign or with the district and and working on that or, you know, helping educate your community about rights or even just making sure that you yourself have this sorted out um, well in advance and you know how you're going to be voting, I think is really, really important these days. And thirdly, I mean, frankly, I'll have to put in a plug for donating to groups um, (laughs) that are working on this issue. I mean, obviously, I care very deeply about my niche organization, but um, there's a lot of groups that are doing great stuff. We work particularly to help climate scientists, but, you know, anyone who cares about the future of science and democracy, there are a number of great groups doing wonderful things. And if you have, um, in these tough times, the ability to financially support one or more of them, I think that is a great thing to do. Absolutely. And I think, as you say, this this seems very niche, right? The defense of scientists facing attacks or prosecution for their work seems like a very niche thing. But I think it is one of those things that when you scale it up, it's chipping away slowly but surely at the scientific integrity and the way that we're able to solve the massive issues in terms of policy and society that we need and rely on science uh, to be able to do correctly and appropriately. Yeah. Um, 
So maybe in closing, because I know we're running out of time, um, what what does the future of science and, and scientific integrity look like to you in an ideal world where hopefully um, organizations like yours are no longer needed? Yeah, I would love that. I mean, it sounds weird <laughs> to say, but I would truly love that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there are a number of issues that we need to solve. And, and the problems of the last few years, I think, have actually in some ways highlighted the need to solve these and have helped increase the likelihood that we will in fact solve them. But they include things like increasing the scientific literacy of average folks, um, helping um, people realize the importance of science and being able to do their own um, kind of fact checking and misinformation checks to help discern what is quote unquote fake news and what is not. Um, making sure that we prioritize science and related infrastructure in our governance. So whether that is at a state or local or federal level, really making an effort to um, improve the infrastructure that allows science to grow and, grow and flourish. And, you know, listening to the scientists, um, implementing policies that actually allow us to address the issues that the scientists are finding. Um, and that's, you know, in some ways a complicated issue, but I think it's something that we need to be spending a lot of time on doing. Definitely. And and there's certainly a lot of work to do. But as you said, I think I'm, I'm also very hopeful in the currents and the trends that we're seeing of people getting mobilized and really standing up for and defending uh, what are in many ways the pillars of, of modern democracies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, <laughs> So, Lauren, thank you so, so much uh, for your time today, for being so generous with your time and, and talking with us today. And I very much look forward to the episode airing and sending that along when it does. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And stay safe. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Olano, and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time, 